welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We come to a scripture about battle today as we conclude our series in Hebrews chapter 11 called Faith Stories. Let me read that scripture in your hearing. As always, we honor the word of God as it's read. The writer of Hebrews concludes, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. This is God's infallible word. May its fullness of truth fall upon our hearts as it is preached. Father, come, take this sweeping and yet also, Lord, mysterious passage. Holy Spirit, open it up to the hearts and the minds of the hearers for your pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, I'm sure that you have understood by now, if you've walked with the Lord for any length of time, that the Christian life is a battle at moments or in seasons. It's not all battle, thank God. Our frames would give out, wouldn't they? But it is battle in moments and in seasons, sometimes lengthy seasons of time. Spiritual battle, battle against trials, as was mentioned in the scripture that was read in our hearing today. Battle against discouragement, Battle against the enemy himself in your spiritual walk. Paul, in fact, at the end of his long life, as he was closing the years of his experience, wrote Timothy and said, I have fought the good fight. And when he spoke the word fight there, the word that was used as he was dictating that letter in prison, he used the Greek word agona, from which we get agony. Much of the Christian life is a hard and difficult battle. But let me ask you, do you ever feel like your battles are completely unknown to others? Do you ever feel like you're almost invisible in terms of the things that you're battling and you're facing in your Christian life, that you're battling in obscurity? You're kind of like an unsung hero in terms of how you're battling and how you're holding hard for Jesus Christ. Maybe you're the only believer in your whole family. That's not uncommon in these days. And so there's really no one that goes through what you do that understands in your intimate family. And you don't have that connection. Maybe you're the only believer in your workplace and you're facing the whole decision of how to stand for Jesus, and boy, you sure wish there was somebody that you could head out to your car with during break time and just have a small word of prayer or just to know that somebody else was battling, but you're alone. 
Maybe you're single in this life, not by your choice or maybe just by the will of God. And you don't have anyone daily to share your spiritual growth battles with. You feel alone. Or maybe you're going through a trial that's so intricate and unusual and deep that really few would understand it. It's unique. And so you can't really talk about it. And if you did, people really wouldn't fully understand what you've been going through. There are lots of ways to live in obscurity in spiritual battle. To feel like you're an unsung hero at the end of every faithful day. And that's the way it is for all of us at times. Each one of us is going to face something in our Christian life that we face mostly alone. And that's why this chapter has been put in the scripture. It's a chapter that that, uh, ends a whole description of how faithful people over their lives fought their battles, some privately and all faithfully. It ends a chapter of the famous, but you're going to find that it dwindles down here in the last verses to a list of unknowns. We don't know all the names that, that populate the last verses, particularly the people that suffered but there is encouragement nonetheless in how they did it. And so I want you to find encouragement in the message today. It's just ahead for you, I'm hoping. I'm going to go through this unique passage, and I'm going to preach it by answering four questions, as I often do. Who were these people? What did they experience and achieve by faith? Third, why did they triumph? What allowed them to come through in victory? And finally, how does this affect us today? Let's move into this great set of stories and lives. First of all, who they were. There's a flow to this chapter you need to understand as we complete it and as it fills into this part of the writer's thinking. Now, I remind you that this chapter was placed in the epistle to the Hebrews, which was a a letter written by an unknown author to a group of struggling newer Christians who had come from a Jewish background. And they had suffered deeply for their faith already. They'd been disfellowshipped from the synagogues. They'd been disowned by their families. Some of them had lost their jobs and their professional status because they claimed Yeshua as Messiah. They'd begun to suffer professionally and financially. Some, according to chapter 10 and 11, had actually had their belongings put out on the street. They'd lost their homes. They'd lost their livelihoods. They'd become instantly homeless for Messiah. And so some of them were battling discouragement and they were battling with the question, is it worth it to go on? Shouldn't we just fold back enough into old Judaism to get along, to go along, to get along, to to find some relief Shouldn't we begin to lighten in our walk with Jesus? Because it's so hard. And he writes this story to inspire them. And he writes in chapter 10, verse 38, my righteous one shall live by faith. And then in chapter 11, he describes faith in verse 1 as the assurance of things hoped for. And then he says, by it, the people of old received their commendation. And then he goes into this long list of stories, faith stories, about people in the Old Testament that faced their battle to deny Messiah, and they came through. So the chapter, chapter 11, is a sweep of Old Testament history. That's very important. Take a look back over the verses we've studied in these weeks. It's a sweep of Old Testament history that starts soon after creation. The very first personality discussed was Abel in verse 4. He was a second generation from the creation, the son of Adam and Eve. And he stood fast in his giving a proper sacrifice of blood in, in line with the promised bloodshedding Messiah who was to come. Abel won his battle and stood in victory. After Ab- Abel comes Noah, who was also one of the, the, the early creation figures. And Noah fought his lonely battle of obedience in the face of ridicule. Then we shift from the creation age in this chapter. He shifted into the age of the patriarchs, the fathers of early Israel, the the founders of that faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And we stated all their lives and they were laid out in the verses uh, of the chapter. 
Then we went from the age of the patriarchs to the age of the bondage in Egypt, four centuries of bondage that had been prophesied by God and Israel under great trial. And then they're led out of that trial by a spiritual hero named Moses. And we went through his story and all of the great miracles that happened and his lonely stand for faith in a God-hating, Messiah-hating culture. So the age of the creation he went through in the beginning of the passage, then the age of the patriarchs and showed faithful people, then the age of Egypt and showed faithful people. And in the last segment that we just finished, he went through the age of the conquering of Canaan, fulfilling the promise of God to go into the land of Canaan, promised to Israel and the battles they would fight. And we went over the, the crossing of the Red Sea and the falling of the walls of Jericho and the faith of Rahab the prostitute. These were all figures of people that stood in a lonely place for God, but they obeyed God by faith. Creation, patriarch's age, Egypt, Canaan. And then after that, now he begins in verse 32 to go through all the other remaining ages of what those listeners knew was Hebrew history, the the other sweep of the Old Testament. After they entered into the land of Canaan came a a time of disorder and disobedience because they didn't fully conquer all the enemies. They didn't fully trust God. They let the enemy's uh, idolatry seep into Israel and Israel was in disobedience and immorality and disorder. And it was a time when the Bible says every man and woman did what was right in their own eyes. It was chaos. Into that time, God brought certain leaders called judges who rose up in different ages to lead the people back to truth, back to repentance, so God's judgment would lift and they could come into freedom again. It was a long age of ups and downs in Israel's life, and it was the age of judges. And the first four figures named in verse 32 were all judges, Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. So there he sweeps into the next age of history. After the age of the judges subsided, Israel asked for a king and God gave them a king. He was named Saul. After that came King David. And from that period on until they were taken captive in judgment centuries later, they went through the age of what is known as the kingdoms. First, a united kingdom under David's rulership, and then a divided kingdom after Solomon's sin and disobedience. But then after Solomon came a string of kings, mostly bad, some good, and a string of prophets to call the nation to the higher king, the king they rejected in the beginning, the the Lord himself. And so it was a sweeping age of centuries of time known as the age of the kingdoms and the time of the prophets. And he introduces that. David was the first king, verse 32, of the age of the kings. And Samuel brought David into his ministry. Samuel was the last judge before the age of the kings, and he was the first of the prophets. And the age of the prophets and the age of the kingdoms, they coincided for centuries Different kings, different prophets, Most bad, mostly bad kings, all great prophets who called Israel back to repentance and who preached the truth to them constantly. Samuel and the age of the prophets. Now the phrase and the prophets is plural because it says that the prophets were the heroes of Israel's history for all the centuries that closed the Old Testament. So the prophets went from Samuel, the first prophet, through Elijah and Elisha, the the early major prophets in in terms of their ministry, the, the miracle prophets. And then it went through people like Isaiah, the great prophet of the coming Messiah, and Jeremiah, who called Israel to repentance, and they never listened, and so they were desolated. And Ezekiel, who had the great promises for how even though Israel was faithless, God in the end of time was still going to bless her and draw her back to himself and make her uh, all that he had originally planned for her. And then there was the great prophet Daniel, the prophet with the visions of all the history of the nations yet to come. Israel in the middle, but all the nations that would surround her. The great prophet of all the, the, the affairs of nations that are yet to come into the future. These were the prophets that are talked about in the end of verse 32. And it would end with what we call the minor prophets. Prophets like Nahum and Joel and Habakkuk. And at the very end of your Old Testament, if you were to look back there, you'd see a final prophet in writing named Malachi and he ended the age of the prophets before there were four centuries of silence and then the New Testament begins. So I'm telling you right now, he was intentional in the way he designed this this writing. So it's a sweep of Old Testament history. He goes from the greater lights down to the lesser known. 
Major names like Abraham and Sarah and Jacob, he gives a lot of attention to, and he tells their stories. Now we get to other characters where he doesn't tell their stories. He simply mentions their names, like Gideon, like David, like Samuel. So the whole chapter seems to be kind of coming down to a focus point. Now, part of that is because the writer knows he's running out of time. Verse 32, and what more shall I say? And I know that many of you have prayed for me to say that up here as a preacher for years now. Oh, my goodness. And what more shall I say? He realized they were listening to a long letter being read, and he realized that they might be losing their attention span, and so he's bringing it to a close. Sometimes I wish certain verses were not in Scripture. That's all I can tell you. (laughs) But he realizes he needs to bring this to a close. And uh, as they listen to this read in their church by a leader. So he says, I'm going to tighten my story down now and bring it to a focus and a close. I could tell you a lot more, he says. I've got a lot more preaching in me, he would say. For time would fail me. In other words, if I had all the time in the world, I still couldn't tell you all the great things the Holy Spirit did through people like Gideon and David and Samuel. But I'm just going to make it brief, he says. So that's the flow of the chapter. Then there are characters that he goes over here and he identifies uh, six or seven of them. So let me do that with you. I'll tell you a little briefly about each character in verse 32 because he leads with them. He obviously wants them to be thought about. Who was Gideon? Gideon was a one of the judges in that early age of Israel when every person was doing what was right in their own eyes. He was raised up by God. Now he had a unique calling. God called him to be a volunteer general to lead the army of Israel against a threatening enemy called Midian. And God made it so that it was a miraculous victory. Gideon had an army of 32,000 Israelites. You say, that's a pretty good army, not against the tens and tens of thousands of the Midianites with their chariots. But just to make it fair, God said, that's too many guys, Gideon. And through a series of encounters with Gideon, he says, I want you to take out not 32,000 people to fight this enemy. I just want you to take 300. Why? So my glory can be seen and everybody in all history will know that I fight the battles of my people. And so Gideon went out with 300 and God conquered tens of thousands. So Gideon has that place in the Old Testament. Who was Barak? He was another judge and he was called to fight a different army that threatened Israel because Israel didn't wipe out all the armies. And so they had to fight him piecemeal after they could have done it all in the beginning. That was the army led by a general named Sisera and Barak led a ragtag army of Israelites and they beat them too. Samson, he was another judge in the time of Israel. You know his story. He was given uh, unusual physical strength all of his life. He was supposed to use it to challenge and defeat the Philistines over his life. Instead, he squandered it in immorality and pleasure and didn't follow the call of God until the very end. When he repented and he knew the call of God was on him and he asked God's power to fall one more time and he demolished the palace of the Philistines. And so in the end, he had victory. Who was Jephthah? A lesser known judge as well. A checkered life as we'll find out. But he was called to lead a volunteer army to go out and defeat another enemy of Israel known as the Ammonites. And he was victorious. David, we're more familiar with, the first of the great age of the kings, and he was Israel's greatest king and Israel's greatest warrior. So the theme of warriors in battle continues here. And then finally, Samuel and the prophets. Samuel, like I told you, anointed David as king, was the last great judge of the age of the judges, and then he was the first great prophet. He received revelation from God and began to teach and speak to the people. And so They went from judges to prophets. Samuel was the first of the prophet. And then you've got the prophets, plural there, that talks about every prophet from Elijah and Elisha in the old days to Malachi at the very end of the Old Testament who would follow Samuel. All those figures. Now these are all greats, right? Some of them we admire greatly like David and Samuel. But I'm going to remind you real quick that though they were all greats, they were all not so greats too. Some of you are nodding. You know where I'm going on this. Because there were some world-class failures in most of their lives. Gideon was was a a world-class coward through most of his life. God came to him with a challenge, and Gideon hid from God. You ever done that on a challenge in your life? 
I have. Hoping God will get tired of looking for me and find that other guy. As if that would happen. No, Gideon hid from from the, the word of God and the call of God. And he denied and said, God, I'm not your man more than once before he finally got up the courage to obey God. And then God whittles down his armies. I just love the irony of that. But anyway, Gideon was a coward first before he was a hero. Barak, the same thing, unknown story. He, he denied the call of God uh, himself and said, Lord, I, I can't, I'm not, I'm, I'm not ready for this. I can't do it. I won't do it. And so he had to be taken through a series of conversations with God, as I recall, in the Old Testament. Samson, a classic li- example of a life mostly wasted, given the strength, given the call, very clear, and he didn't use any of it until finally he realized at the end of his life, under the judgment of God, he was a failure and he repented. And then the power of God fell on him in a mighty way. And Samson ended his life in repentant victory. But all the early years of his life, a moral failure. Jephthah, who in the world is Jephthah? I was talking to a brother before service and he said, I have never understood why God included a whippo like Jephthah in this, in this line of heroes. Because Jephthah was mostly a fool. Didn't know God very deeply. Didn't know the Old Testament law and promises. And when God put him into authority, he, he blew it in authority. He actually made a rash vow that may have cost the life of his daughter, which was against the will and the law of God. Jephthah was a failure in most steps in his life. And yet God still pulled that failure into enough place of usability that Jephthah led them to victory over the Ammonites. So there's a pattern here. Even Samuel and David. David, we know, was an intentional adulterer, probably a rapist and a sexual assault perpetrator who then covered up his sin, murdered the husband of the woman that he defamed and tried to hide it all. We know David's dark story. Even Samuel, the first of the prophets, turned out to be not the, the last of the bad fathers and parents. Samuel failed as a father, and and, and the the legacy of that touched Israel for generations. So they were all greats in what God did through them, but they were not all great in terms of the life that they lived. And I draw encouragement from that. I agreed with my friend, why would God include somebody like Jephthah in this list? It's because he's a God of mercy and grace. He's a God that when you come repenting, He will come with restoration. Don't you ever forget that. You come repenting and God will come immediately with restoration. Come and let us reason together, God said to his people. Though your sin be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Come, let us reason together. Who's the one who is resisting restoration when we sin? It's not God, it's us. Because we want to overcome our shame and we want to be perfect before we come back to the Lord. Don't do that. Here's my lesson to me. I wrote it down in my notes. Joe, remember, this teaches you failure is not final. Faith can return to the repentant life. You may think, well, I blew it in an area of my life. God will never use me again. I'm just going to stay in the shadows because nobody like me really belongs. That's a complete lie from the pit of hell. You come repenting, God comes restoring. Why wouldn't God use you again in some dimension? You may not qualify for every dimension that you used to, but why wouldn't God use you in a life if you've come back to him through whatever you did and you say, Lord, I'm yours again? What's he going to say? Well, because of what you did, you're in the doghouse till, till you die and go to heaven. No, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Anyway, I'm going to preaching. First question, who they were. Second question, what they experienced. Now he goes from describing these people that are in his mind that he wanted them to remember that they all knew because they all knew their Old Testament. Then he says, who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice, obtained promises. And then he starts this long list. Notice who through faith. That's familiar, isn't it? Because the whole chapter is built around this phrase. I think I found it 12 times by memory. I think I was going through the chapter 11 and 12 times he says by faith or through faith. And now he closes and says, these guys are just like all the others, like Noah, like Abraham, like Moses. All of them conquered their obstacles by faith. They did it through faith, not because of the greatness of who they were, but because of the greatness of the God they trusted in that hour. 
Through faith, they did all of these things. Now look at the list. The first part from verses 33 to the middle of verse 35 is all about spiritual achievements. Great things God did through them that were great victories. But then you'll notice the narrative changes and beginning in the middle of verse 35, he goes from great achievements to suffering great afflictions. And this is a longer and and steeper list because quite frankly, Many of us, most of us are going to be called to suffer more afflictions than greater achievements. So he doesn't leave that part of the faith life out. Let's look at them both. Let's look, first of all, at this list of achievements and see if we can mix and match and put some names to these things. Who through faith conquered kingdoms? Who would that be? In my mind, it would obviously be David. Because David was the greatest king in Israel's history. He conquered more territory for Israel than any other king. Conquered. Others might have negotiated for territory. David conquered. More kingdoms, more land. He was the greatest general Israel ever knew. How about the next? Enforcing justice. Well, that had to be the judges. Because that was their job description. Israel was full of injustice and disorder and lawlessness and immorality in the time of the judges. And the judges were raised up to take Israel into obedience, to call out their sin, to lead them back to the Lord so that the disciplining hand of the Lord would lift. And it happened over and over and over again. And they had to be faithful. People like Jephthah, even though he had a screwed up life, was called to speak truth. It's people like Samuel, the greatest judge. Then he goes on. Enforced justice, obtained promises. Who would that be? All the prophets, because that's what a prophet did. God gave a promise to a prophet, and the prophet would preach that promise to Israel. Some of the promises were great, like Isaiah's promises about a suffering servant who would come. Isaiah chapters 50 to 55, the suffering servant section of that great prophecy that talked about the Messiah who would come, who would take upon our sins upon him, who would suffer the agonies of crucifixion, but who would rise in victory and buy himself a people out of bondage and sin. Isaiah had that promise and he preached it. Others received promises about the future, like Daniel, who preached his promise to Israel and to all of us today that God is working over history. God has a plan to redeem his people. He has a promise yet for Israel, and he's going to deal with the nations and bring them into ultimate judgment. Daniel received the promises and preached them. How about stopping the mouths of lions? I think you can identify one particular person who was thrown into the den of lions Daniel. It's, it's obvious. Some of these are pretty easy to mix and match, aren't they? Daniel's the obvious there. Conveniently placed right after that, quench the power of fire. Who were Daniel's three friends? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Wow, you made your Bible quiz. That's nice. Why, are that, why is that listed next? Because they followed Daniel's example of faith, and they stepped into a furnace that would have burned them alive, and they trusted God to be with them, and they literally quenched the fire by the power of God. So they're a part of the, the unknowns now that we're starting to step into. Who uh, uh, was uh, able to escape the, the edge of the sword? Well, obviously, David's included in that, escaping the edge of the sword many times in his trials with Saul. But pretty much uh, most of the prophets faced threats to their life, some of them severe like Jeremiah and some of the minor prophets. So they're in there. Then he says, we're made strong out of weakness. Who would that be? I would put a little money on Samson there. It's a beautiful story of restoration. You can be made strong out of weakness too. He was. Became mighty in war. Who would that be? Gideon's my bet there. Obvious. Went from weakness and fear to mighty in war under God's power. Put foreign armies to flight. Who would that be? Joshua, pardon me, Jephthah, David, everybody that was a general in Israel. So all of them are lumped in there all the way through the age of the kings and all the way through the kingdoms. Finally, verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. What's that about? Well, on two occasions in the Old Testament, two different prophets, Elijah and Elisha, both were approached by women who, who followed them, who were women of faith who had a family member, a child who had died, and they each came and asked the prophet to raise that child from the dead. And in each case, God granted mercy and that child was raised to live further on in life. I'd say that's a magnificent achievement. He ends with the most supernatural one. 
Kingdoms, justice, promises, lions, fire, sword, being made strong out of weakness, conquering mighty, mighty enemies and armies and conquering the, the physics of death itself. Great achievements, all by the power of God. He says they did it through faith. That's a great list. And some of us look at our Bible and just say, wow, I just love to have been that guy, lived in that time. Well, there's another dimension to living in any time because this is a world that stands against the faith of the Messiah. There are not only achievements, and God is going to give you some. God will give you achievements in your Christian life. He'll give you victories. He'll help you lead people to Jesus. He'll help you grow in, in purity and, and integrity in your life. He'll help you overcome many spiritual battles. He'll build your ministry as he gives it to you. Any ministry you have, whether it's in a small group or it's teaching a large group of people, is a spiritual work that's supernaturally opposed, and God will give you victory month to month, year to year. You have many achievements in your Christian life. All of us have a spiritual gift and a place to serve in the church. Every time you show up and serve, it's an achievement. It's a work of God, whatever your ministry might be. Or you may be faced with great health crises and you're given the power of God every day to show up even though you're suffering and call him a glorious God. That's a great victory in our, in our culture and society. On and on I could go. But with our victories also comes a calling sometimes not to victory, but to suffer. And here he goes in the middle of verse 35. Some, in contrast to all these that had the great achievements, some, and now we get into the nameless unsung heroes, some were tortured. Now the timber of the words change. Refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. And now he goes through what believers may face and have faced over time. It's quite the list. Verse 36. Others, again, the unsung heroes, Suffered, suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. He's referring there probably to the prophets like Elijah and Jeremiah who was imprisoned in a pit and enchained. But he was speaking, speaking about countless other unknowns both in that age and in this age. Verse 37, they were stoned, they were sawn in two. Who could he possibly be referring to there? Tradition says that Jeremiah was stoned to death for his ministry in the end. And tradition also says that Isaiah, the wonderful prophet of the Messiah, a prophet of comfort and restoration, was sawn in two. And that's how he met his end at the hand of one of the wicked kings. So there's truth behind the images. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Some of them, the prophets, and I know Elijah went through this for sure. Elijah was homeless and living in caves in the mountains for a long stretch of time as Ahab and Jezebel sought his life and he had to live outside of society, homeless and without anything except the hand of the Lord. But he wasn't the only one. He says, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. There were many besides Elijah that suffered the same fate, it seems. So the Holy Spirit brings back the unknown history of these unsung heroes and he reminds these people that other people have gone through the suffering you fear. Some of these Hebrew Christians listening to this epistle read in their little church were really afraid because they had lost their homes and their profession had been taken away from them and they might have been this close to homelessness themselves. And they were wondering, what's going to happen next if if, if I can't find a place to live for my family because we, we, we stand for Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah. Can we survive that? That's why the Holy Spirit put it in there. Some of them were facing social rejection and homelessness. And he says, even if you become destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, and you're living in a homeless way, God will be with you. People today experience a growing fear about what could happen in our world and our society as secular hostility in a neo-pagan world rises, particularly against the faith of the Messiah. I say read Hebrews 11. There's nothing you might go through then that they didn't go through already. The afflictions. Now notice, 
He says, through faith, they endured these things. So I notice it takes deep faith for God to do great things in your life. That's the first part. But it also takes deep faith for you to endure hard things in your life for his name. People say, I don't know if I could endure a lot of suffering for Jesus in the future. I worry about it. I worry about what's going on in our society, in our world. And I don't know if I'll be able to answer that call. You know what? It's not up to you. It's your faith in him to answer it through you. He'll stand in you. He'll stand in his church. Since when did you think this was all up to you? Oh, your weakness is where God's strength rises. And so all of these unsung heroes are the story of that reality. Well, let's go to the third question because now he ends with the the, the somewhat complex description he summarizes in verses 39 and 40. He says, and all these, now who's he referring to? In my opinion, he's referring to everybody he referred in the whole chapter. Going back over all the lives. Great and small, known and famous and unknown. And he says, all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This is curious. It seems somewhat contradictory. Because you see, they did receive the power of God. Some of them had the power of God to come through to great achievements like a Gideon. So God did work. How can the author then say they didn't receive what was promised? Oh, they did in the moment. Others received the ability to suffer mocking and chains, and they went through it and didn't deny Messiah. So what could he possibly be referring to as something that was promised that was not received? Well, let's take a look at this. What was the promise It had to be something larger than just grace in the moment. What was the great promise? It was the promise they were all living for. In fact, it's not a what, it's a who. It's Yeshua, it's Messiah. That's who they stood in battle for, and that's who they suffered afflictions for. They suffered for their their faith and their belief in the God of Israel, who would one day send a Savior and a Messiah. Someone who would replace the old covenant, which is the old method of how God dealt with their sin, which was a covenant based on law and sacrifices. You remember the story. The Jews throughout all chapter 11 had to live with an understanding that under the old covenant, they had to keep the law of God as well as they could. And then they had to make sacrifices every day, every year that temporarily covered their sin, but it didn't give them full hope of heaven. It didn't give them full freedom. They had to believe that what Isaiah had promised in his prophecies and what others would join him in promising would come true. And that is there would become come someone who in the words of Ezekiel and Jeremiah would create a new covenant. Isaiah said the Messiah would come and the Lord would lay on him the iniquities of us all. And by his stripes, we would be healed. And they knew that someone, the Messiah, the one they believed in, was going to come in future history, and he was going to come, and he was going to take the wrath of God for all their sin, and instead of keeping the law, he would have lived a perfect life that would go to a cross, and instead of them having to do sacrifices every day, he would be the one great perfect sacrifice that would not just cover their sins for that day or that year, but take away their sins. That's why John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of the world. They didn't know all that was coming in detail. They didn't understand crucifixion. They didn't understand that Jesus might come from a place called Nazareth. They didn't understand all the details, but they knew that the Bible said the God of Israel is going to bring his people a savior. It's going to be his perfect son. Psalm 2, Daniel and other places confirm that. And that perfect son would live a perfect life and take it and endure the wrath of God for them, the wrath they couldn't take. And he would rise again to show that his wrath was sufficiently taken, and they were forgiven. You see, they were looking for a Savior. Now, there's a difference between how they looked at the Messiah and we do. You know where I'm going here. The Scripture says 
that they did not receive what was promised, verse 39. Because you see, they had to look ahead to the arrival of a Messiah. They didn't see him in their time. They longed to see their age be the time when Messiah would come. But century after century, he didn't come until Galatians 4 says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And he sent forth his son at the end of Old Testament history onto the planet. And then Jesus went to that cross. But see, they were all looking ahead to that and they they accepted it by faith. Now, how do we look at it today? We look and we see it all done. We look back at the cross, don't we? They had to look ahead to the cross. We look back. We're in a different place. We're in the new covenant age. We know that the Messiah did come. We know he came and he was born probably in 4 BC. He went to the cross somewhere between 30 and 33 AD, just as the prophet Daniel in Daniel 7 and 9 predicted. We know he did come in history. We know he was crucified according to history. We know he was risen from the dead according to witnesses in history. We know he's alive in heaven today and he's ascended to the right hand of God. We know all of that and we look back on it and we celebrate it. They had to live by greater faith than we did because they had to look forward to it and believe it would happen. Do you see why they're commended? So all these, though commended through their faith in their moments, they did live by faith in their moments. They didn't receive what was promised. They all had to die still expecting a Messiah. And that took a great and noble amount of faith. Let me show you this back in the chapter. Let me take just a minute more here. Go back to Hebrews 9. Verse 11. This kind of puts both covenants together. He's writing now to these new Christians who are in what we call the church age. And we look back upon when Christ appeared, don't we? But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, the promise of God fulfilled, finally the Savior has arrived. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. What's that talking about? Crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. When Jesus walked into the throne room of heaven and he said, it is finished, Father. We know that happened. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. When Jesus died, everything changed. Before him, there were goats and lambs that were sacrificed that temporarily covered sin, but his, his sacrifice was perfect and it eternally saved people. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, took it away for the moment, how much will will the blood of Christ, how much more? Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God on Calvary. Notice it was without blemish. He was a perfect life, perfect sacrifice, kept the law in every way. Because you can't and you didn't. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now look at this, verse 15. Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of what? A new covenant. That was the promise that they were looking for. A new way in which God would secure their eternity because they couldn't. He is now come, and he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. That's the promise that was made. So go back to Hebrews 11. In my opinion, as a Bible interpreter, what was promised in verse 39 is what I just read to you. They didn't receive it because it hadn't happened in history yet. But now it has. They died looking ahead to it by faith. We die now looking back and we see it. How privileged we are in our age. And let me get to the bottom line. My question was, why did this allow them to triumph? Why did they triumph? Why did they endure torture? Why did they endure mocking and flogging and chains and homelessness? Why did they not give up on their faith and just give in to get along? Because they knew that if they stopped believing in the God of Israel and the Messiah who was coming... They might get some temporary relief, but they would lose eternal hope. And for them, losing eternal hope was too great a price to pay. They endured 
because they, they, they believed that eternal life was coming, something better was coming. They believed that Messiah was coming. But listen to this. If they had denied their belief in Messiah from Abel in the beginning to Malachi in the end, they would not have been sure in their souls of eternal life. And that was just not worth doing. Jesus, the Messiah, was worth suffering for. And everything he promised, too. I mean, look back in this chapter, chapter 11, verse 13 and 16. Eternal life is not just an ephemeral experience. It's not just a a state of mind. God said there's a true city there. Verse 13 of your Bibles in chapter 11. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. That matches verse 39, doesn't it? They never saw Messiah. They never really knew of the cross and all of its beauty and greatness. But having seen the promise of a Savior and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. That's what their vision was. If they had been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out like Abraham, they would have had opportunity to return. Or even Israel with Canaan. But as it is, listen, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Not only was God not ashamed to be called their God, they were not ashamed to call him their God. And so that's the call from this great writer to believers struggling in the Hebrew Christian church to which he wrote, struggling with the question, how do we endure what may be coming? How do we stand even though no one knows about our struggle? We're just a little church in an unknown province of the Roman Empire. We're spiritually unsung. Jesus is worth it, is the answer. And what is coming is far better than anything you might be losing. Oh, there's the passage. Let me bring you the fourth question and close. How this affects us. I just love how this writer writes, kind of writes like I preach. He lays out all the evidence and opens up all the truth, and at the very end, he drives home an application. How do I know that? Well, there were no chapter breaks in the original letter. We've put that into to structure the scriptures. So there wasn't a chapter 11 and a chapter 12. So there was no break between chapter 11, verse 40, and chapter 12, verse 1. His narrative, can, his, his reasoning continues. And we know that because in, what, what do you see there at the first word of chapter 12, verse 1? Therefore, you know that he's concluding his argument. He's saying, this is why it matters. This is how in our modern preaching parlance, we would do the applicational portion. This is how to live out this great set of truths that I've just spent 40 verses telling you about in your life. Therefore, since we, now he gets to them. And he gets to us in our our age. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Who is he referring to? All the people in chapter 11 whose stories he's just told. What was a witness? Somebody that testified that something was true. What did they testify with their very lives? That it is worth it to suffer for Jesus. It is worth it to stand for the living God. And when you stand in faith, God shows up. So all of their stories were gathered as a great cloud of testimony. And he says, since you've heard from all these people, let us, now he goes to them again, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. What was the sin? Probably fear and unbelief and cowardice under under difficulty. Or maybe wanting to go back to the old Jewish way and the law which felt more comfortable and was socially safer. Whatever it was, it was not to be done. And then he says, and let us run with endurance that erase the race that is set before us. If you want to understand that verse, circle, set before us. He's applying everything that the, the believers in Hebrews 11, the race they ran was theirs. There's a race God has given to you that's yours. There's a race set before you. Run it. We all have a race. This ministry has a race. You have a race in your private walk with God. 
that only you can finish. Only you. And he says, let us run it with endurance, enduring faith, just like they did. Now, how did they do it? He summarizes it. Verse 2, looking to Jesus. They, they looked ahead to the Christ that would come, and they believed he would be sufficient, and they believed he was worth suffering for, and he would one day make all things right and take them to heaven. We look back to the same Jesus now. So we're to look to Jesus too, but we know somebody that has arrived in history, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the one who took it to the cross and who made it possible for us to be redeemed, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. How do we look to Jesus as an example? He ran his race, didn't he? He finished his race, didn't he? He went all the way to the cross, and at the end of it, with his arms outstretched in the final agony of the wrath of God, when all the wrath had fallen, he said, it is finished. He ran his race. He's the example. He endured the cross. So you can endure anything in your life for him. But he's also somebody that we can look at with expectation. He despised the shame, but now it says he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You not only can look to Jesus as an example of what you suffer and to get through it just like he did by faith in the Holy Spirit, but you can also know that all of this is going to come to an end, and one day when your battles are over, you're going to come into heaven, whether by death or rapture. And the first thing you will see is the one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And then everything you ever suffered will fade away in a moment. Every price you ever paid will be meaningless compared to the price he paid for you. And everything you ever hoped for will be out-hoped in heaven. Worth it all. Worth it all. So, do you feel like an unsung hero in your battle, just in your everyday obedience as a disciple? Somebody that, well, a few, if anybody, knows your struggles. I'm your pastor, and I can't know them all. But I've been able to give you the pattern to face them from this passage. This passage was written for you. This passage was inscripturated for your battles, for your battles yet to come, for your silent walk with God. It was written for you. So take everything in it and drink it in and let it become part of the DNA of your spiritual reflex system. And you'll be able to endure. You can run your race with endurance like they did. And soon we'll all see the one who is seated at the right hand of the throne and will be with him. That's worth 